Uh, good morning once again. Open your Bibles to the book of Jonah. We are continuing in week seven, I believe. Is it seven? Yeah, I think it is. Uh, in the book of Jonah. Uh, what an amazing journey this has been. We're going to be in chapter three, looking at the whole chapter today. I'm excited about this. It's an amazing chapter. Um, and it's going to take us some time to get through it, so let's dive right in. I'm going to read the whole text, the whole 10 verses. We'll pray one more time, and then we will get Beginning in chapter 1 of Jonah, chapter th- pardon me, verse 1 in chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, yeah, you are gracious. You you display in this story your graciousness by by both warning and by relenting. And so, Father, I just thank you so much for this, the story of this man, of Jonah, your prophet, who was a prophet then and is a prophet today to us as we study and listen to his story and his words. We want to thank you for what we will learn from this. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would, uh, you would speak to all of our hearts today. I'd, I pray that you'd speak to our hearts, through our minds and our emotions, as we hear from you, not from me. I, I, I pray that you would, as has already been prayed this morning with our team, that you would, uh, yeah, you'd help me to decrease so that you, Lord Jesus, may increase in this room. And I pray these things in your worthy name. Amen. Uh, I'm going to just set something up here that I almost forgot to do. While I'm doing that, let me give you your outline for today's message. You'll see it up on the wall here. The title for today's message is, as you will see, How and Why People Repent. It's kind of a how-to message right here in this text, right? And we will see three things. So it's going to be a little bit different today. Normally, you know that we go through the text, and as we're going through the text, we see each point unraveled or displayed. Actually, we're not going to see those until the end, but they are the mission of God. We see that and we learn that from this text. Secondly, do justice, doing justice. And thirdly, yes, 
preach wrath. So as usual, I have a few questions and to get us started, to get us thinking in line with what I feel the text and the story is, is saying and, and can teach us this morning. And on that basis, I actually have a bit of a visual display for you. Now, this is supposed to be a glass, uh, but it's a jar. And so the question, and you, you can tell there's something in it, right? There's a fluid in it. Can everyone see that? It's there. It's right. Okay. So my question for you is this morning, for all of you in this room, just to think about and maybe answer to yourself, are you a glass is half empty person or a glass is half full? Which are you? I'll tell you how to really know the truth about that. Ask your wife. Ask your husband. Ask your mother. Ask your father. Ask your best friend. They'll tell you. They'll tell you. Whether, in general, you're a glass is half empty or a glass is half full person. I mean, come on, listen. Since I was a kid, I don't know about you guys, but I was sort of taught and encouraged that you want to be a glass is half full person. You know, forget about this stinking thinking that leads to hardening of the attitudes. You want to see life is up and to the right. Amen? Sure you do. Of course you do. I do. How easy is that? I mean, one word, COVID. (laughs) Every day you get up and you remember, yes, where's my mask? (laughs) Where is what I got to get? ready to go outside. Every day at 3 o'clock or 3.20, you know that Dr. Bonnie Henry is going to have her stats, right? Thank you, Lord, for Dr. Bonnie Henry. But those stats are every day. And those stats include how many people in the last 24 hours have passed away. And so there's that that we live with. We all live with that every day. And then, of course, it doesn't, I don't know, the news cycle, it, it, it can take three days, seven days, no more than 14, and there's some injustice, some calamity going on in our world whereby you'll just look around and you go, you know what, it's true. The world is going to H-E double hockey sticks in a handbasket. Now, as a pastor, I can say that word out loud, but I just, I like that sick. But that's the way we feel, isn't it? I mean, how long does it take any day? And then, and then. You're not well. People you love are not well. The question I ask people often in the past, and I'll ask it again today, are things the way that they should be in our world today? And the answer is, honestly, almost all the time, no. No, they're not. So, yeah, we're supposed to have these positive attitudes, but the reality is our lives are often feeling like the glass is half empty. This is Jonah. (laughs) This is exactly where this guy is at. It's it's where he's been at for a long time. He's probably around 55, 65 years of age. So he's thinking, freedom 55, let's go to Maui and retire, right? And now my life will be up and to the right. But no, for all of his life so far, he's had to basically be doing two things. One thing primarily for most of his life. And that, as a prophet of God, he's had to prophesy and, and call out his own people, the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, for what? Their unfaithfulness. As prophets in the Old Testament, that's what they did 90% of the time, was call out their own people for their unfaithfulness towards God. And listen, if you don't repent and come back and worship the one true God, Yahweh God, he's going to deal with you. He's been doing this all his life. Every day he's getting up and going, oh, are you going to want me to speak to them again? 
It's not really something to look forward to, is it? That was his job. That was his role. And now, the Lord God is asking him to go to those people in Kabul, Afghanistan, (laughs) Nineveh, and preach repentance to them so that they could repent and be forgiven by God and welcomed into his family? Come on. Those people, more than any other people in the world, are the reason for my attitude about my glass half full or half empty life. This is Jonah. I wonder, is it you? Is it me today? Christian, hold on. Stay with me till the end. This is important to hear today. So let's uh, unpack the text. I want to go through the text with you, unpack it, and then we will get to our three points. But we need to learn some things about what are actually going on here because they build into the lesson I hope to share with us. So verses 1 and 2 in chapter 3 were these. You saw them or heard them. Then the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So right here in this verse, you're going to find the reason why many a sermon has been preached on this passage. Go ahead and Google it, this passage, and and you're going to find sermon titles like this, The God of Second Chances, right? It's an awesome sermon title. It's totally missing the point, but of course the sermon would go like this, you know, like, hey, listen, don't beat yourself up. You know, we're all sinners. We all, you know, we all make mistakes. And I mean, look at Jonah. You know, God is a God of Second Chances. So there you go. Go home. God bless you. Amen. Right? Worship team, come on back up. Totally missing the point. But I've heard sermons like that, that this is a, is he a God of second chances? Yeah, third, fourth, fifth, and 20th? Yes. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins if we confess them. Well, as I said, what we actually, that's not the point of this text at all, or this story. What we actually have here is a man whom we've all come to see at this point in the story who has been running from the call of God, running from the mission of God, which is to seek the well-being of people he doesn't like and doesn't want to be part of his family. He's running from that. And so at the end of the day, the bottom line is he's just completely disobedient. Not just running. He's a completely disobedient man. However, as we know, God pursues him, and he causes a great storm to come upon that sea that threatens all of the people on board, and we've already seen that in the end, Jonah is sacrificed so that the men on the ship can live, which was a perfect picture we saw of substitutionary atonement, which is fulfilled in Christ Jesus perfectly. Right here in Jonah, three days in the belly of the fish three days in the belly of the earth, Jesus. However, the difference in the story, of course, was Jesus really did die. Jonah didn't. God preserved him in the belly of a fish for three days, gave him three days and three nights in that dank space to think about what he'd done. I don't know about you, but I would have been on my knees on the tongue, on the belly, I don't know, whatever, from the moment I entered that fish. But he eventually does pray and ask God to forgive him. He comes to his senses, cries out to the Lord, he's repentant, and God hears the prayer and forgives him. 
He then causes the great fish to expel him, the word is vomit him, right, out onto the shore, onto the beach, and I think we need to see the picture. He's probably lying on the beach, right? He's lying there, probably covered in a fair bit of slime, right? Because the word vomit would include, he wasn't the only thing brought up. (laughs) Shaking himself out on the beach, and then he hears these words. He hears these words. But there's a twist, right? Did you notice the twist? There's a twist to what's recorded in these verses at the beginning of chapter 3. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 2, God says the first time to Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And so those last eight words are, for their evil has come up before me. I can see what they're doing. I can see the evil. It's come up before me, and therefore, I'm going to act. But here in chapter 3, verse 2, we read the message that I tell you. And so you read that, and you're going, okay, hold on. Is the Lord God telling him I'm going to give him the message on the fly? Is he telling him that the message has changed? Or, hey, think about this. Who's writing this story? Well, it's likely Jonah. That's what theologians and commentators would believe. And and even if it wasn't Jonah, even if it is someone else who's saying, Jonah, sit down, you've had a hard life, but tell us the story. And as the one recording it, he would have gotten it from Jonah. So has this been changed a little bit? Maybe. It's a strong possibility. We'll come back. Verse 3, so Jonah arose (laughs) the second time and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And look at this. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Important point just to think about. Three days' journey in breadth, meaning it would take the average male, usually in that culture, but human, three days to walk from one end of the city, the metropolitan area of the city, to the other. Go on Google Maps, by the way, and see how long it would take for you to walk from one end of New York City to the other, or Tokyo to the other. Not as great as Nineveh, almost, but it'd be a city of at least that size if not larger. But then we read in verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. He's one-third the way in. He's like, I don't know if I want to even go any farther. Look, look, God, I'm in, okay? The gates are back there. And then he calls out, look at this. Yet 40 days and Nineveh, Nineveh shall be overthrown. Is that the message? Is that the message? We haven't heard that message specifically from God. Those are his words that he's interjected here. So it's interesting. He arrives at the gates. First, he only goes a third of the way. And second, look, his message is 40 days. This is a literal translation. I put it to you this way. 40 days from now, Nineveh, you are going to be destroyed. I want to suggest to you, he preached that message of God's wrath with a bit of glee. That's what he wanted. That's what, of course, they deserved. 
Basically, the translation is, look, you're going to be sacked. The rulers are going to be overthrown. The people and the great city captured. And as the case would often be, everyone will die or will be taken as slaves. And all of what you own will be pillaged and plundered and taken away. You're done. That was the message that he wanted them to hear. Now, there's some truth in it, obviously, from God's perspective. But I also want to ask us, is that actually the message that the Lord God wanted them to hear? Well, we're going to see from our text, I don't think so. And so what could, did Jonah expect from the preaching of this message? Think about it. Like I said, he's, he's preaching it with some semblance of glee. This is what he will hope will happen. But at the end of the day, he's basically going, kill me. <laughs> like, I don't care. He's repented. But his heart isn't completely right yet, is it? Right? It's like when he was on the ship. He's like, throw me overboard. I just want to die. I don't want to go to Nineveh and preach repentance to these people. Just throw me overboard so I can die. It's the same thing here. That's what he would have expected on that day. Throw me into the sea. Let me die, as I said. So if not kill him, maybe they would at least, listen, he would expect at least this. Maybe at least they would ask him, okay, hold on. You know this is true? You know this is what's going to happen to us? Okay, listen, fill us in a little bit. Where are the armies coming from? How can we mount some defense? This is a very strong city and culture. You would expect that, that they would you know, try to find out some intelligence from him so that they can mount a defense and protect themselves from the Yahweh God of Jonah, who they've heard about. You might think that, but listen. Surprise, surprise. Verse 5 tells us, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So listen, we don't get any prose here to give us insight into the look on Jonah's face. But can you imagine? <laughs> like, the immediacy of this in the text, the idea is, is the same, right, when, when Jonah was thrown into the sea in, in chapter, right, chapter 1 it is, right, he's thrown into the sea, and what happens? The, the sea is immediately flat, calmed. This is an immediate response from these people, from, from those words, those words alone from from Jonah? Those might have been the words, the only words that Jonah spoke. But I want to encourage you this morning. Those aren't the only words that these people heard. So, as I said, we don't get any prose to tell us what he's looking like or what he's thinking, but I, I got to believe there's a look of Shock and horror, really, because he knows what's going on here. If these people are legit, if God buys this, if he believes they're being repentant, he's going to forgive them. And if he forgives them, oh man, now they're going to be welcomed into the family of God. Well, as the pagans did, listen, we see in these texts... They did what pagans did in those days. 
It was the way that in which they would appease their gods and they would show their gods at least that they uh, were repentant. And that is they would clothe themselves in sackcloth and they would sit in ashes. It was, it was an act of repentance. It was an act that, look, they knew they were doomed. They knew the gods were not happy with them. And, and so they, they did this as an act of repentance. And that is the key in this text. The Hebrew word uh, for repentance is the word shub, S-H-U-B. It literally means to turn, of course, to repent, to turn. And it is recorded four times in verses 6 to 10. You'll see in your, in your Bibles. And now look, at the end of the verse, it says, and this is important, from the greatest to the least to them. And so we see that, and Jonah would be seeing this, they're completely unified here. The rich and powerful and the poorest, the greatest and the least are all unified in an agreement and repenting. Verse 6 says, the word also reached the king of Nineveh. And he immediately arose, it should say, could say, from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. In this one verse, I mean, we could just run right past it. Like, it's just, it's just an anecdote, right? The king did what the people did. Well, actually, there's a lot more going on here. It's actually an amazing picture for us to be seeing. Uh, typically, when word like this from the, the plebs, from the people, reached a powerful king, like the king of Nineveh, the first thing that he would be thinking is like, okay, wait a second, there is an insurrection being planned, or that these are mere zealots and fanatics, and what he would typically do at that time is just marshal his troops, get a couple of battalions together, and just go deal with them. That's what a king of Nineveh would normally, would normally do. But here we have a, a very special picture. The result of the preaching of God's wrath, God's anger towards these people, turned the power structure completely upside down. The power structure in that culture completely upside down. Now you've got a king, a powerful king, listening to his people. That's unheard of in history. And yet we can fly by that kind of thing and go, oh, okay, great, let's move on. Let's find, what's, how's the story end? Right? Well, we're going to get there in the next two weeks. So the king issues a proclamation. This won't be on screen, but I'll read it to you. To be published throughout Nineveh. Again, this is, this is crazy. He says, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. What is that? That's a fast. So, so they're going to fast. And, and normally they would fast, as I've already said, and they would put on sackcloth and they would sit in ashes and like, mm, what? I don't know. Okay, but it, it would, that'd be about it. But then it goes on, it says this, but listen, also let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. What is that? That's prayer. So right here in this text, as a decree by this king, we see fasting and prayer. That's pretty cool, and it's also pretty amazing. And then he says in the last half of verse 8, let, look at this, every one of you, every one of us, turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. 
This is the key to the whole passage, and we're going to unpack it as we go through our three points today. He concludes with these words. I love it. <laughs> who knows? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm adding that kind of, I don't know, but like, who knows? Right? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. I mean, I, I love it in the sense that it's, it's not funny, but but what he's basically saying is, or might be saying is, who knows, he might, but the reality is we don't deserve him to do that. And then he uses the language perish. Does that remind you of anything? For God so loved the whole world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him shall not, what? Oh, you can do better. Come on. Perish. This is a 2,700-year-old text. It's a text that's 700 to 750 years before Christ. We're seeing language that is gospel-oriented. The conclusion of our passage and text for today is this. When God saw what they did, God, we know this, guys. You know this, church. He sees everything, every moment of every day, what we're doing publicly, what we do in private. He sees it all. That should frighten us but it should also encourage us because he's with us. When he saw how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would, not might, would do to them. And he did not do it. That's a fantastic conclusion. It's the best you could hope for under the circumstances. So point number one that I want to show you from this whole story today is the mission of God. It's about the mission of God. The whole book is. It's remarkable, isn't it? As we read the final verse in the story, I suggest we hear the words, mission accomplished. Right? I mean, from verse one, the very verse, first verse, it's been about the mission of God. Our God is a missionary God. He's constantly sending people and eventually, of course, his son, and then eventually, of course, you and I in this world to accomplish his will and his mission. He tells Jonah in verse one to arise and go to Nineveh. And then he repeats that same command in Chapter 3, verse 2, arise and go. Do I need to repeat myself? Obviously, God, you do. Lord Jesus, you do. Holy Spirit, you do. Please repeat it in all of our ears, all day today and tomorrow. Arise and go. Make disciples of all nations. So the Lord God has a specific mission in mind here, and it relates to, listen, a specific people and place. Man, that should be really encouraging. You, you and I may not think of ourselves from time to time as, I've been using the comparison to Nineveh as Kabul, Afghanistan, or wherever. But I'll tell you what, in the eyes of God, we, we should be careful about that. Because I think all of our evil is coming up to him. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the people of Nineveh are on his heart, which is why he sends Jonah. The Lord God, our God and Savior, cares for these people, those people too, the whole world. He also cares about several other important things that we see in the story. He cares about Jonah. 
He immensely cares about Jonah, the missionary that he wants to, to be obedient and go on his behalf. As I mentioned to you in the first message, Jonah's story is kind of a premonition or, or, or a, 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 a vision of a future story, a parable that Jesus preached. Remember that? It's, it's the parable of the prodigals, right? The younger son and the older son. In the first two chapters of Jonah, Jonah resembles the younger son who demands his inheritance, doesn't want to live with his father, doesn't want to be part of the family anymore, but just wants to go off to Maui. <laughs> Tarshish in the case of Jonah. And he wants to spend his life on wine, women, and song. Well, beginning here in chapter 3, Jonah now resembles the older son. And we're going to see even more of that next week. Who, and we will truly see it unpacked in chapter 4, is not happy with the father, not happy with the father for the way that he has lavished his love on the returning younger brother. And in this case, the way the father, the Lord God, is lavishing his love on these repentant people. So, here's the lesson for you and I here today. The Lord God, just like the father in the parable, cares deeply for the older son. Remember that parable? He's, he's like, son, yeah, the party's for your younger brother, but we, I want, like, what is mine is yours. It's been that way all along. Come on in. Come and enjoy. But that parable ends like a cliffhanger, doesn't it? We don't know whether he does or doesn't. Jonah's going to end that way too. Almost exactly the same way. And so, ultimately then, the Lord desires that Jonah knows what the mission really is. And in the same way for us here today, Jesus wants us to know the why of the mission. The why? I love them too. I love them all. That's the why. But also, the how. Point number two, doing justice. Hmm. So, I'm pretty sure that all of you who are part of the Rock Church, all of you who are Christian, or doesn't matter, all of you who are you know, on social media, I, I like it, watching any news over the last 1, 5, 10, 20, 50 years, you will understand and know that in our world, in our culture, and in most churches, there is a lot of concern about social justice, right? And so without getting too deep into the woods on that one, with you, let me at least attempt to reveal to us what we might learn about that subject from this story today. First, as we return to the text in chapter 3, let me ask this question. What actually caused the people of Nineveh and the king of Nineveh to immediately hear the threat of their impending doom and repent? What, what caused them to do that? Because you, you heard what what he said. He just, he just positioned a threat. What happened? Was it the power of the word that they heard? So let's begin looking at, again at the message that God really wanted them to hear. And I believe that through the Holy Spirit, they did hear that they heard this. And it goes back to Jonah 1-2 which is the message that God really wanted him to give to them. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. 
So uh, we've been over it a little bit about what kind of a horrendous, brutal people they were, but what was the evil that came up to the Lord that he wants them to be convicted about? Well, we get some clues from our text today, but we also get clues from history, which is amazing. From history, we know that these people, the Ninevites, were for a time and a season great and powerful. They were. They were like the Roman Empire in their day, great and powerful. However, their power was almost exclusively displayed in absolutely horrible atrocities towards whom they deemed to be their enemies. They pillaged and plundered their way to power and, of course, opulence. But then, listen, history tells us this. Like all empires, evil and otherwise, they saw things begin to disintegrate inside their own city, inside their old world, amongst their own people. Historians have pointed out that about the time of Jonah's mission, listen, about the time of his mission, Assyria had experienced a series of famines, famines, pardon me, plagues, revolts, and eclipses, all of which were seen by these people as omens or far worse things to come. One historian, theologian said, and argued that this was God's way of preparing the ground for Jonah. That's remarkable. Many, many years ago, before my wife and I came to Squamish to plant this church, we'd been praying about another place. <clears throat> it was kind of like our Tarshish, I guess you could say. Not really, because it would be difficult soil. Salt Spring Island. My sister lives there. We had friends there. They knew that I was leaving the business world and becoming a pastor and and they said, come here, plant a church. We need a good church. Come in. And so we started praying about it. And I remember clearly on the day that I called up my buddy and said, yeah, I want to go through church planter assessment and, and, and felt called to potentially Squamish. I also felt not Salt Spring. And the reason for that was, and I told my sister, was that no, the soil's not ready. The people in this community uh, who are giving themselves to every other New Age religion and philosophy on, on the planet need to get to the end of that. They need to get to the point where they realize this isn't real. This isn't the way. I don't know if they're ready now, but I'm too old to plant on Salt Spring. So maybe one of you should go over there and do that, right? But listen, my, my experience tells me this. That's exactly what happens. We as Christians, we get all worked up and worried about, oh, the world is going to H-E-W. Listen, it, yeah, it is. But then there's a time when God prepares the soil, when people are at the end of themselves, and they're ready to hear the gospel. Please remember that as you go, as you arise, and you go. So now you can imagine what happens in a culture when the good old days begin to wane as they did in Nineveh. People begin to turn on one another, from the greatest to the least, as we've seen in our text. In Nineveh, like many, if not most countries in our world, the rich and powerful were oppressing the poor. And listen, when that happens, the poor have a way of responding. I know we don't like to hear this sometimes, but when the poor here are oppressed, right? what do they do? Well, not all, but many go, well, that's fine. You want to drive your fancy SUVs and live in your fancy mansions and have your condo up at Whistler? Great. We'll steal them from you. 
we'll break in. And in fact, when you come down to the streets to see us, we'll make you afraid to be on the streets where we are. And the culture begins to see this going on. This, I won't get into the terms that people use to describe that, but I want to ask you, is that happening in our day at all? In our world and culture at all? Well, it did in Nineveh. And then the king told us the important point when he said this. And he, and, and he, and he said it was true when he said these words. Look at this. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Listen, how did he know that their ways were evil if Jonah had not preached what he was told to preach in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 2? Well, there's only one of two possible answers. Either they asked Jonah for more information and he told them that, which we don't know to be true, or they just knew. They knew through the Holy Spirit's conviction. They knew this to be true. Everyone was treating the other in evil ways. What the Lord God by, did by, pardon me, by sending Jonah to call them out for their evil ways resulted in, and listen, did bring about justice. But listen, it brought God's justice. God was the one bringing justice to these people. He always is. So from this story, it becomes clear that if justice is, co- is to come to our cities, Lord Jesus, please, our nation and world, it will come from the Lord our God. Now, of course, we have a role to play in this. Jonah had a role to play in this. He played it poorly. We should avoid playing it the way he did. But we have a role to play in this. And it's the how of the mission that leads to true repentance and healing of everyone that brings true justice. Equality for everyone. Fairness of scales of treatment for everyone. That's God's justice. And he wants it. That's why he sends us into this world. And so the truth is, Jonah didn't go to Nineveh to do some social work, did he? He didn't go to, uh, you know, feed the hungry. He didn't go to do any of those things. He preached the threat of divine judgment loudly and in God's name. And that's our point number three for today. Preach wrath. You ready? We've been over this before in Jonah, and I know we all love doing this part of the mission, don't we? But I hope today from this text and just from a few words that I want to give to you that you will see that this is, yes, the reality of this story, but truly, friends, I I hope we'll see something new about what we perceive as God's wrath. I don't know about you, but growing up as a Catholic, you know, I always thought that God's wrath was going to be a bolt of lightning, right? He was going to get me. If I didn't go to confession for three months, the list would be too long anyway, so why bother, right? That was going to be the expression of God's justice towards me. So, we see God's wrath oftentimes as a violent God, an angry God. We've already seen this in our text and our story with Jonah. He's, his, when he's angry, it's righteous first. It's based on his righteousness. He is righteously angry. At what? At sin. At sin. And so, what I want you to see today 
Scripture definitely talks about God's wrath. Come on. It does. From the fall till now and for the future, it's coming. He poured it out on who? On Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, for your sake and for my sake. It, it, it will. It's coming. Ultimately in the end. But friends, listen. In a way that I don't know, I didn't always see it this way. But in a way, I, I don't know if we see this, but it's on display around us every day. In one sense, it's really not the Lord our God pouring it out per se. In the case of the Ninevites, their evil ways that came up to him were destroying them. Their sin was like a cancer. Yes, it impacted those who they brutally treated, but it was disintegrating their own hearts and their own lives. Tim Keller puts it this way beautifully. The misery and social breakdown, the economic and political devouring of one another, yet the inner emptiness and discontent it brings is actually the outworking of God's wrath. Therefore, another way of looking at God's wrath is that when we see the social breakdown, the social mess all around us, we should see that it's an expression of God's wrath. Keller adds, He presides over the cause and effect processes he has built into creation so that they are expressions of his holy rule in the world. Meaning, God has actually created the world in such a way that cruelty, greed, and exploitation have natural consequences, disintegrating consequences that are a manifestation of God's anger towards evil. I think, as I said before, we want them to be angry about those things, don't we? We do. And yet, rightly, we want him to be the one who brings justice. Not you and me. I would do it like Jonah, half the time. Not like God. So, friends, one more time today as we close, and you're all saying amen, let me ask you the question again. Are you a glass half empty or a glass half full kind of person? Christian, let me encourage you, you're neither. Several months ago, I got a book after listening to a sermon by a man by the name of Louis Giglio. Uh, He wrote a book called, Don't Give the Enemy a Seat at Your Table. And I want to leave you with the verses that he unpacks in that book, which are beautiful, because it was a, a whole new way of looking at Psalm 23 than I've ever looked at it. I don't know you, but Psalm 23, from my perspective, is almost always about a funeral, right? You know, the, you know I know the plan, uh, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, right? Let me, let me read the psalm for you quickly, and then the last verse, just to give you some encouragement here today, believer in Christ. This, I believe, as he teaches in his book, this is, this is our psalm for every day. This is our psalm for every day, until that valley of the shadow of death, for sure. But listen, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Definitely in Squamish. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. 
for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And then he says, you prepare a table before me. This is speaking of Jesus. He's prepared a table before you. There's absolutely wild, fresh sushi on it. There's really good Merlot, if you're into that kind of thing. He's prepared a table before me in the presence, look at this, of my enemies. We all have them. You anoint my head with oil and my cup, that cup that's on my table that Jesus is sitting with me at is what? Half full? It's overflowing all the time. And so like Louis would say, don't let the enemy have a seat at your table. Arise, go, do justice, and preach the love of God. Pray with me, would you?